Well, this morning, uh, I want to get started by talking about the fact that I was very, very terrible at managing money. I'm not, I'm not, it was funny because I was always pretty decent at math. We were talking about that down in the uh, uh, high school, Sunday school class earlier, junior, senior high, Sunday school class before, um, about math classes and different things we were good at. And I was okay at math class, but when it came to finances, I didn't do so well because I really honestly don't know how much of a good example I had to work off of. Um, I, not to say my parents were awful or atrocious or anything. I just don't remember a whole lot of things about our finances as a kid, except for the fact that we just didn't go buy everything at the store whenever I said, Ooh, I want that. And they said, too bad. Let's keep going. Um, I remember those kind of things, but then there were other times, especially as I got older, I started to notice a few things and the things I do remember, I look back on now with the, the understanding I have as I'm a little older and go, I'm not sure that was probably a healthy practice. I don't know, but I just don't know that, that was good. And I, my dad preferred, he was kind of one of those guys who preferred that I work at home and do stuff around the farm, and he'd prefer to give me money to go out as long as I helped and stayed around the house and did that kind of stuff versus going out and getting a job. So I was a senior in high school before I got my first job and hadn't really ever had a bank account, hadn't managed money all that much before I went off to college and now was responsible and in charge of all of this stuff that I had to deal with. And I'm going to be honest, I was pretty terrible at it early on. I got a credit card. I had a bank account, but it always stayed pretty uh, down to the wire. And it never had any kind of checkbook that was balanced in a good way. And then fortunately, I met my wife and we started dating. And she wasn't my wife at the time, of course, but we started dating. And I learned that she was pretty good at this stuff. And I'm thankful for that because she taught me quite a bit. Uh, it helped me work through some of the bad decisions I had made in college. And as we got married and started our life and trying to work through things, we both had school debt from private schools. We um, had vehicles and different things in our life that we had to figure out and work through. And, and early on especially, it was trying to manage, okay, we've got these school debts, we've got these debts, we've got, we bought a house when we first started our first job down near Vincennes, and, and there's all this stuff to manage, and Tessa had done a lot of research and was really good at trying to say, how can we work and plan ahead so that we're eating away at this debt and working towards the future? And all that being said, I started to kind of listen and learn, and I felt like it was funny because every once in a while I would just say, man, I just feel like we have no money. Like, we just don't have any money at all. And then the further into our relationship we got, the more I started to kind of get a little more involved in the budget and, and looking at what we were bringing in and looking at the different numbers, and I'm kind of going, we have more money than I thought we did. Like, not that we should go spend it, but man, we have more money than I thought we did. But we live like we have nothing, right, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of stuff that we just didn't do, and it was this responsible living, this responsible decision-making that was prepping us for the future down the road. And to the point where long, hard effort. A couple years ago, we got ourselves out of debt completely. No more school loans, no more vehicles that we owed on, anything except for a house that we just bought here. So mortgage is the only thing we got under our, under our, over our heads at this point, but that's okay. It's manageable. But the cool thing is, is that my wife not only taught me how to work our way out of the hole and, and to do these kind of things, but to start planning ahead and thinking ahead and thinking responsibly, responsibly to the point where I still make a car payment. I don't know anything on a car, but every month we make a car payment to ourselves that goes off into a bank account that is sitting there so that whenever one of our cars is no longer going to be the car we drive, 
we're ready for a new car, right? And we're thinking, as we work through our finances, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. Like I said, I started off by letting you know I'm terrible at this. You can pat her on the back later. She's really good. But all of this to say, we, we got this mindset, and I, I latched onto it, and I got excited. And it's kind of funny. I, I feel like to some degree we've kind of switched roles because now I'm the one kind of sitting there going, man, we need, to, we need to be careful. Like, we don't have any money. We do have money, but it's like I got to be careful. I, I gotta, we got to put back for this, and we got to put back for this, you know. Thinking ahead and planning responsibility, responsibly so that if I want to go to Disney World ever again, I start paying for that now, right? Making payments to myself so that when that day comes, if I ever want to take my kids on a big vacation or trip, I've planned and I'm not trying to shove it on a credit card or do something irresponsible later. I'm, I'm trying to think through this process so that I'm planning and thinking ahead, making investments now, making payments now that will pay out and be beneficial in the long run down the way, retirement and all that kind of stuff. And we think financially sometimes about the future and try to plan ahead. And we're told and given that counsel, we need to plan ahead and think forward and have money put aside for this, that, and the other, a rainy day fund, all that kind of stuff. And we live that way sometimes with our finances. Sometimes, not all of us. We learn. Like I said, I had to get there. I was pretty terrible. At the same time, and everybody's kind of scared because Matt just got up and talked about budgets and Nick's talking about money. You know, here we go. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've, I've just been here two months. I'm no better than to start uh, talking money already, right? <laughs> it's a bad idea. But no, I, I use that as an illustration to say there's other things other than finances where we need to make payments and investment now with the future in mind. We just finished talking about building blocks. We wrapped that series up last week, and we discussed this idea. Everybody got their little Legos to take home. We started talking about what we're building here. And if we started to talk about investing in the kingdom and building up the kingdom here in this place and investing in Christ's church now, it's not just about what program could we start tomorrow, what class could we have, what kind of cool outreach could we do. It's about thinking through the big picture, having a target way down the track that we're starting to dream about and take care of. And one of the things that I think is so significantly important is realizing that way down the line in the life of the church, if we're building, we have to build in such a way that understands that some of us and all of us at some point will not be in the picture. That we will eventually finish our journey in our efforts to build the kingdom, and at some point, someone else has to take the baton and carry it and move it forward. And so if we're really truly investing in the kingdom in a forward-thinking sort of way, it's not just about how can we invest in us, how can we plan and program now, it's about how can we invest in the future well-being of kingdom and ministry down the way. And I think one of the most important ways to do that is remembering that one of the most valuable resources we have we need to invest in now is the next generation. And so for that reason, we're starting a new series this week called Next Gen. And yeah, there it is, Next Gen. And... I, you guys know I, I'm a youth pastor at heart. That's where I came from. That's what I was doing is serving in youth ministry. And through the course of all of that, I have this deep passion in me and a belief that there's this amazing group of students, an amazing group of children in this world, and we have to take 
the most, make the most of every opportunity now, every opportunity we have at this point in their lives as they're young, as they're growing, to invest in them, not just in the mindset of they are the future of the church. As a youth pastor, that phrase used to drive me crazy. Yeah, we got to take care of these kids. They're the future of the church. Because for me, I was sitting there going, I've seen how the church can be led and challenged and pushed and, and really influenced by passionate pursuit of Jesus in the lives of students. I lived that in high school. I saw some of that stuff, and I know that youth groups and children's ministries and kids who get on fire and passionate about Jesus can really influence and impact adults in their faith and in their walk. And so it's kind of wrestling through this mindset as we talk for the next few weeks about the next generation and how do we make investments? How do we influence them in such a way that we recognize they absolutely are the future of the kingdom? But at the same time, they are active participants now, not to be shuffled off for later, but to be invested in at the moment. Because we all know if we wait till the end to start investing, we've wasted a lot of time and we won't have near the yield that we would have if we had started ahead. And so for the next couple weeks, and this won't be as long as building blocks, I promise, we got Christmas coming up in December and all that fun stuff. We got to get to baby Jesus, right? But I want to talk for the next few weeks about how we as a body put a priority on investing in the next generation and how we recognize and value and understand that the investment we put in here greatly impacts the future of what we're trying to build. So if you would, bow your heads with me. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, talk a little more. Father, I love you, and you know I love children. Father, your word is very clear Time and time again, you said, let the children come to me. You put your hands on them. You prayed for them. And you told us that we have to enter in. If we want to be a part of your kingdom, if we want to enter into that kingdom, we have to come with a childlike faith. We have to look and act and think and have that same sort of innocent faith that they have. And Father, we know that you have given us such a valuable gift and possession in children and in the next generation. And you have entrusted us with the responsibility of taking that and investing it and making it grow so that the kingdom continues to grow, and so that generation after generation after generation will know and understand who you are. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with that over the next few minutes, and that we would seriously fall on our knees and ask ourselves, what are we doing to make an investment in the future? And, Father, I pray that you would challenge us and show us exactly where it is you're calling us to invest. We love you, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you want to go ahead, you can grab your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to get there in a few minutes. Um, but I want to let you go ahead and put your bookmark there, your paper or whatever, and so that way we can come back to that. But before we get there, I wanted to kind of look back and ask this question. Just think in your minds for just a moment. If I were to ask you, okay, we need to invest in the next generation. If that's the case, how would we go about doing that? What does that look like? And I asked you for just a second to think about that. What does it look like to invest in the next generation for the church? I think many of us, not just here in this room, but across the country, would have similar thoughts that start to come to mind. Because it's the way we've operated for a lot of years. Some of that mindset is, well, if we got like a a hired staff member that was a youth pastor, if we um, had good programs and and events and we took them on trips like to Gatlinburg, like we're going to do, and and all of these things that kind of build some momentum and some energy and, and reach out to the schools, maybe try to get some kids in so that we can kind of build up a better youth program. And, and the mind starts to go with all these things that will draw students in 
and get them involved and active and around a good leader who would love on them and teach them the Bible so that they could learn to behave. And then that way they would grow up to be passionate followers of Christ. Because the Bible says if we teach them, right, we invest in them when they're young. If we, we share that word, they won't stray from it later in life, right? There's that, that understanding in God's word. And I don't think that's an uncommon thought because we see it time and time again. But if we think back to how this all started, there's kind of this history I, I got interested in a couple of years ago because I was very passionate. I went to school to learn how to do those very things. How do we get students to get invested? How do we put on the best program that makes them want to be involved? How do we do all this stuff? That's what I went to school for. My degree is literally in youth ministry. I took classes. I took a gym class on how to play dodgeball. Not really, but kind of. Um, it's only sort of a joke. Uh, it was a gym class. Got to have it. But we, we did this kind of stuff with this mindset of how can we draw students in and keep them in. And I loved working with students, and I love that mindset. But a few years ago, I really started wrestling with this question, how did we get to this point? Like, how did we get to this place where youth ministry is what it is? Because I'm starting to see flaws in it. Like, I'm looking at the system, and I'm saying, I don't see the kind of retention rates that I think we should. I'm talking to Johnson students, kids who are going to college to study ministry, who just graduated, and I can tell that the only thing they really care about is not the church and serving the kingdom, but all they really care about is still being able to go on the trips that they went on in high school. I'm going, they're going to school for ministry, but they don't have a ministry heart. They have a heart to keep doing the fun stuff that they've always done. And I started to say, this seems broken, so I started to wrestle with it, and Youth for Christ, Young Life, all these cool um, groups that still do great work, even down the road in our community, and, and do great things. I'm, I'm friends and meet with uh, Kevin and, and Dave uh, Shunk and the guys who work here at the high schools in town. And I love those guys and the work that they do. But early on, these programs started kind of having these big rallies, and students would come to these rallies, and they would be kind of almost like a tent revival, like we'd remember and think about. And they would draw all these large numbers of students, and they would do activities and fun things and get all these kids involved. So the church sat back, and they started to look at that, and they said, huh, well, these groups that are pulling in all these students and telling them about Jesus, we, they're really having success with that. We should mimic that model. And so the church started to try to say, hey, we want some people to invest in this and do the same sort of things. And, and so they started to kind of develop youth ministry programs that would draw students in, even though the mission and the heart of Youth for Christ and Young Life and those groups was to have these rallies and then push students to get plugged into the local church. It was kind of a partnership sort of thing is what they viewed it as. But churches started to establish youth ministries. They started to have their own youth group times. And eventually, it was interesting, the, the larger church took notice and leaders and elders around the world kind of started to wrestle with this. And there was actually a council, World Christian Council, something to that effect, that met back in um, the early development of youth ministry. And they put out this statement. They said, hey, we actually think this is a very unhealthy practice. So we think that this is causing these, these uh, I think they use the term ghettos to kind of exist. These small silos is what we call them today. These individual groups to exist in the church that fractures the community and the body on the whole. And we think that all churches should dismiss and do away with their youth ministry programs they've started to develop. So people took notice of this, and they started to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe this is a bad idea, and they started to wipe it out. And they, But the problem was is some other churches went, well, we're having a lot of success, and there's a lot of kids, and we don't know that we agree with them. We don't know that that's really a problem. And so they kept doing it. 
And eventually the churches who didn't do it weren't having any young families, weren't having any students participating. And therefore, they eventually went, we got to keep up, we got to compete, we got to still have families in our church. So they said, it's just inevitable, we're going to have to have these programs too. And so they started to develop these programs, and here it is. All of this stuff is happening, and what we've basically developed is not only youth ministry, but children's ministry, and eventually in bigger churches we had college ministry, and of course then even past that we probably developed a singles ministry, and then maybe past that, like we continue to develop ministries that meet the specific needs and life stages of different people to try to get them connected into these communities, because ultimately what I noticed and what other people noticed was a high school kid who had grown up in a children's ministry, always off in a class, always learning from other adults, having fun programs and games and crafts and different things, and then move into youth ministry where they'd have a lot of fun trips and games, deep relationships, serious, deep, meaningful missions, experiences, all of these wonderful things that are all good. Don't get me wrong. I still think there is a place for all of that. I'm not trying to diminish it. It's just one piece of the puzzle. Because what would happen was they'd go through all this stuff kind of isolated and segregated from the rest of the body. And then eventually they would graduate. And youth ministry is not there anymore. It's kind of like the safety net just got taken off. And all of a sudden I'm taking a big leap into real life. And I've got to try to find a way to connect to the church. But the problem is I don't really know the church. I don't really know how to get involved because I haven't been. I plugged into my youth ministry. I had a small group there, but what do I do here? I don't know these people that well. I don't see how I fit into this dynamic. And so I, I noticed more and more this problem that existed where we had invested in good ways, but not completely, not holistically, not in a way that really helped a student understand. And it got me thinking a lot about this idea of apprenticeship. It's kind of this lost art that I think it makes me kind of sad. Matt, it was like kind of what you were saying earlier, like you spent a lot of time in that car garage, right? And learning with tools in your hand and probably messing a lot of stuff up and breaking a lot of things, I assume, right? This idea of apprenticeship is something that we throw back way back when. It was kind of this mindset, usually younger kids would get thrown into, let's say, the blacksmith shop way back when, around forges. Nowadays, we wouldn't let a kid anywhere within 100 miles of that stuff, minus the child labor laws. It's just not safe to let a kid go near those dangerous things, right? And so kids are isolated from the work, and therefore, they don't see it. But in that time, there was this idea, you're watching the master at work. And after you're done watching long enough, maybe you get a simple project to start on. And once you've mastered that, after making mistake after mistake after mistake, then you're also given more responsibility and told to build upon that. And meanwhile, the master is working alongside of you, showing you how it's done, yet at the same time, correcting your mistakes. And there's this long, arduous process of walking alongside of someone who knows what they're doing, who's investing in the work, and mistakes are made. But I think today our culture got away from this apprenticeship model. We moved to this internship model. Because here's the thing, life moves way too quickly and the high expectations that our society puts on us are far too risk and reward oriented to allow kids to mess things up. I don't have time to correct his mistakes. I need you to just watch me, get some coffee, and don't get in my way and mess it up. And that's the model of internship today, right? Follow me with my cup of coffee and don't get in my way and you'll see how it's done. I lived in, I'm not bashing my dad, I love him dearly, we've talked about this. 
But I was kind of that kid, I felt like I grew up not in the uh, learning how to do lots of things. I'm the one who's not as good at some of that stuff you're talking about doing. Because I kind of would try it, and I would mess up, and then I would get this. Here, no, let me do it. And I became the tool passer. And you can learn a little bit watching, but really you got to get in there and make mistakes and learn from your mistakes to really learn what you're doing, right? And therefore, I eventually just kind of lost interest altogether. I felt like I wasn't really good enough to do this. I felt like there were other things I was better at, and I, I kind of settled into a groove of being better at other things. And my dad continues to be good at some of those other things that are more practical and fixing stuff, and, and he's a welder, and he, he can make all kinds of crazy stuff, and I just feel so inept at a lot of that stuff. And yet at the same time, we live in this culture where it's kind of like, watch me do this and don't mess it up. Don't get in the way with my kids. Hey, just step out of the way. I don't have time to mess with this right now. We've got too much to do. Just let me clean it real fast. You know what? You go in the other room and watch TV. I don't have time to mess with that. Let me just get dinner done. Let me do this. How many of you in this room can think of something that you probably knew a skill that you understood how to do that you were, felt like you were pretty good at before the age of 10 that a lot of people today don't know how to do at all. Not only are you pretty good at it, you were expected to do it on a regular basis. Several of you probably can think of at least one or two or three or five or 15 things, right? I think the expectations have continued to shift and change to the point where we don't expect a lot out of kids. We kind of want them out of the way so they don't mess things up. We don't expect a lot out of interns or those who are learning we just don't want them to get in the way so they don't mess stuff up. We are so afraid of the system getting broken or things not being perfect or our time schedule getting messed up that we shuffle people off to the side so that we can just do it ourselves so it gets done and it gets done right. But the problem is, is at the end of the day, when I shovel someone off and I only worry about me getting it done the right way, I have lost sight of the heart of discipleship. Discipleship, this model where Jesus goes out and finds some fishermen, some tax collectors, some guys who really just by society standards are kind of a mess. And he goes and he says, hey, put the nets down, you guys. I got something better for you. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. And for the next three years, the next three years, these guys follow him around and watch him do stuff. But he also sends them out. It's not just, hey, watch me this whole time and we'll debrief on it. He's sending them out to do stuff. They're engaged and active in what's going on. He's telling them to go preach or to do different things along the way. He's correcting their mistakes because we've seen plenty of moments where they tried to cast out demons and couldn't do it. And he's frustrated. You have a little faith. Here's the problem. There are other moments where when we talked about in Sunday school class this morning downstairs. They're, they're bickering with each other on the road about who's greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is like, golly, guys, you guys still don't get this. It's not about who's the greatest. It's about who's the least in the kingdom. And these guys are kind of bumbling along next to Jesus, and it takes quite a bit of time and eventually the Holy Spirit for them to really catch on. But Jesus is loving. He's patient. He takes these 12 guys with him everywhere, and these three guys he specifically takes even into some serious situations like the Mount of Transfiguration where he takes these three up and allows them to be in this wonderful moment of experience that is just awe-inspiring and they don't want to leave and he's kind of like no we could stay here but we need to go back down and get back to work and get back to it yes this is fun but we need to not stay here just dwelling in God's presence but actually go do the work that we're called to and so he takes these men with him everywhere not shoving them out of the way and saying just get out of my way and let me do it 
but showing them loving patience and bringing them along in the system to work and to learn because he knew he was going to be crucified. He knew that at some point he was going to ascend into heaven after the resurrection. He knew what was coming and he knew they needed to be prepared. Not just by telling them, they didn't sit down in a class and say, get your notebooks out, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know to build the church. Let's go. He took them with them and showed them what it meant to engage with people, what it meant to have a heart of compassion and love and grace and sacrifice and selflessness. He showed them by example what it meant to live the life that he was living. I look at scripture and I look at that example of discipleship. I look at all of these amazing stories like the one we're getting ready to talk about in December where a little 13-year-old girl gets told that she's going to carry the Messiah and have a baby. I look at the story of Josiah, an eight-year-old who becomes king, and one day as a teenager, he's sitting around, and they uncover this book, and they read it to him, and he says, why are we not doing this stuff? This is not okay. This is God's word, and he immediately tears down all the idols and turns Israel and their heart back to God. There's all of these stories of these young kids who we often think, David, who's not very old at all. He's kind of the runt of the litter. He's the little guy, and he's the one who steps up in the middle of this massive army. He wasn't even old enough to go fight and do the things he was supposed to be doing, and he's the one who takes down Goliath. And I don't think it's an accident in all of these stories that God is not only using fishermen and tax collectors and the least likely, he's also using young kids who no one's expecting much out of, but who he desires to use in amazing ways because he knows that they are the future of what he's trying to build. He knows that they're going to be a valuable and important part of the story, his story, where he's engaging this world and what he's trying to accomplish. And ultimately, I told you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. He knows that they need to understand not only how to engage and how to practice and how to participate in the ministry he's calling them to, he understands it's important for them to learn the heart of what they're doing, that it needs to be such a regular part of everyone's daily life that that's what they talk about, that's what they discuss, that's what they do on a regular basis, that so much of their conversation is consumed with God and who he is and his heart and his commandments, that here in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll read this, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and all of his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So we have this, um, this understanding that Moses has been telling them about the commandments. He's been sharing this, and he knows they're about to take the promised land. He knows that God is really going to establish this nation that he has called them to be. He's setting up his chosen people to go be what he's prepared them to be. And these are the words that Moses is declaring. He's telling them, you need to be prepared to pass this on from generation to generation. Here, therefore, in verse 3, there is, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. You can follow along on the screen here, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These are familiar verses. We've heard Jesus reference these when being asked, what is the greatest commandment? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't even use one of the commandments that God gave on the mountain. He calls back to what Moses says right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and calls this the greatest commandment. The love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These important words, but these next lines are also extremely important, and they're the ones we don't talk about quite as much. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as fauntlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on your doorposts of your house, and on your gates. This mindset, you shall teach them to your children diligently. Diligently isn't a word like when you get around to it, that five minutes before bed. It's not a word that kind of implies that when we get around to it or when we have free time or whatever, it is this diligence, this importance that God puts on the need to raise up a next generation so that this can continue to pass down from son to son to generation to generation throughout all of time and all of history. God's teaching through Moses throughout this time, whether it be a festival, whether it be a feast, whether it be the Passover meal, whatever it is, there's this mindset that God is establishing these things so that they can be passed down and not forgotten so that not only will they know the commands, but they will be on their hearts that they will love God with all their heart and with all their might, with everything they have, and that his commandments and his way will be the topic of their conversation always. When they walk along the road, when they sit down, when they lie down, when they do anything that they're doing together, they're talking about these things. And sometimes we read that and we say, all right, parents, so it's your job and your responsibility then to talk about these things all the time and bring up your kids the way you should. But I would like to throw out this challenge and say this. When Moses was talking in this moment, he is not just talking to parents. He didn't just gather all the parents of this time and this era together. There is very much so in the context of this scripture a community mindset of how these children were to be raised and to be taught. This was the responsibility of God's people to continue to diligently teach and talk about God's commands and his ways and his love from generation to generation to generation so that investments were being made in the long-term health of God's people. And so this morning, I just want to set that tone for what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. The next few weeks, I want to talk about some ideas, some principles, how we fight for the heart of the next generation how we widen their circles so that they have more influence and more people surrounding them and loving them, how we can be serious about our own faith in a way that impacts and greatly brings them into relationship, how we sometimes miss the mark because they don't get to see us acting out and living out our faith in real and genuine ways because their sample size of what they see from people in the church is sometimes very limited. And what they see from sample size from other people and social media and television and all these other things is very large and vast. How do we become an influence in the lives of the next generation in a way that is long-lasting? Because here's the honest, sad, sobering fact of the matter. 
One of the things as I was researching this a couple years ago and wrestling with whether what I did as a youth pastor was working, the system that I had devoted so much time to and invested in, I just didn't feel like it was producing results because for me the results were lifelong followers of Jesus. I, I Actually, my first ministry, I had like five, six kids when I first started at my first church in Wheatland. And my last lock-in there, I'm not saying we ran this all the time, but my last lock-in event at that church, we had like between 70 and 80 kids that night. And some might look at that and go, wow, that's really cool. That's a lot of success. I, I have nothing but deep, deep regrets in a lot of levels about seeing that as success because I did at the time. I felt like I had accomplished something. But honestly, as I look back at that and I look at the state and the relationship of so many of their lives now and where they walk and where they stand with the Lord and where some of them even are at all, some of them are still involved, and that's great. But honestly, when we talk about percentages, the percentage of students who still participate actively in their faith and in their church is so small. And nationally speaking, one of the lowest numbers for the number, like the lowest percentages, one of the better percentages, let me put it that way, one of the healthier percentages I've heard for how many students stay in the church after graduating high school is 50%. When I was in school, that's an F. I'm pretty sure it's still an F. 50% is only half of what you, that's not succeeding. And if 50% is the good number that I've heard, some statistics say as many as 80% walk away. And that we're only retaining 20% of those students. I would say something is broken and wrong. And as we build, as we start to take steps forward, as we start to invest in the kingdom and say, what are we going to be about at Northside? I want us to recognize and understand that we go nowhere long term if we don't invest in the future. And that the next generation is a vital and important part. And if we can't even share the gospel in a meaningful, long-lasting way with the children that have been entrusted to us, how in the world are we supposed to reach anyone else? And so I want to talk for the next couple of weeks about what it means for us to step up and take the honest responsibility seriously that the next generation matters and that they are one of our most valuable resources that God has entrusted to us. They are right here and ready to grow and learn, to be brought alongside and taught and, and brought up in a culture that helps them to be apprentices following the master. Not us being the master, but him being the master. And so we want to say, what steps can we take to invest. And so this week, I simply want to ask you to pray. I, I, I'm going to talk about several things, but I just want you to start praying and open yourself up and saying, God, over the next couple of weeks, I know that you're going to challenge me in some way to invest in the life of the next generation. And I don't know what that looks like yet, but I want you to start opening my heart and softening my heart to what that means and what that is. For some of you, you're going, hey, I've already volunteered downstairs and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And that's great. That's wonderful. I love that. But I want you to keep praying and saying, God, maybe there's something else I need to do a little different or a way I need to take that a step further or a way I need to deepen that relationship that I haven't done. Speak to me and help me know what it is you're calling me to do in terms of investing in the future. So if you would stand, the worship team's going to come up and we're going to pray. And this morning, if you have a hurt, a struggle, a concern in your life, you want to come up and pray over, I want to encourage you to do so. We'd love to pray with you and pray for that. Um, if you have something you just need somebody to pray with you about, you feel free to grab whoever that's nearby that you love, that you have a relationship with, and pray together. Um, 
if you just need to silently sit in your seat right there and just say, God, I want to already begin this process of asking you to soften my heart and speak to me, then I encourage you to do that without any concern or shame or worry about what anybody else is thinking. This morning, just surrender to him and listen for his voice and say, God, where are you calling me to go? Let's pray. Father, I love you so much, and I'm thankful for the gift of youth and life. And all of us remember what it was like to be full of energy and excitement and life and and feel like the whole world was in front of us. And sometimes it doesn't feel that exciting or energetic anymore. And sometimes we're scared and worried about what the future holds. Sometimes we feel as though we're in a lot of trouble in terms of the future of our country or our church or our world. But Father, instead of sitting back in fear and, and uncertainty or being unsure of what to do, Father, I pray that you would give us confidence and boldness through your spirit and through your name to step out and to do something to grab this generation who will make great impacts in our world, either positive or negative. And Father, for us, we want to make sure that the kingdom is thriving, that the kingdom is impacting this world and making positive change in your name and through your spirit. And we know that that responsibility lies in us to invest now. And so, Father, we surrender our hearts and our lives before you, asking that you speak to us this morning. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.